Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In 1800, the shogun's chief minister wrote the following about the city of Edo. Someone said that if Edo did not have frequent fires, then people would be more showy and flash. In the capital, or in Osaka, they do everything with lavish elegance. People hang up paintings in their homes, or put on arrangements of flowers. But in Edo, even in the affluent areas, everything is restrained. People only display a single flower in a bamboo tube or a simple pot. The wealthy have fine chess sets, but the box will have paper fix under the lid to double up as the board. Edo's sense of conciseness comes from continual fires. According to Professor Taiman Screech, author of Tokyo Before Tokyo, Power and Magic in the Shogun City of Edo, the city is the source of much of what we consider to be Japanese culture. Sushi, Mount Fuji, cherry blossoms as the stereotypes, but much more than that. Tokyo Before Tokyo is a rich, illustrated volume that presents the vibrant visual history of Edo. The book is presented as a series of vignettes dealing with key landmarks and districts from the old city, from the Shogun's Castle to the famous Red Light Yoshiwara District. Professor Timon Screech is Professor of History of Art at SOAS University of London. He is the author of at least a dozen books on the visual culture of the Edo period, including perhaps his best-known work, Sex and the Floating World, Erotic Images in Japan, 1700 to 1820. In addition to Tokyo Before Tokyo, his other most recent book is The Shogun Silver Telescope, God, Art, and Money in the English Quest for Japan, 1625, published last year by Oxford University Press. In 2019, Professor Screech was elected as a fellow of the British Academy. Today, Time and I talk about the different vignettes that make up Tokyo before Tokyo and the role that Edo played in historical Japan. We'll also investigate his decision to focus on landmarks and districts and whether any of old Edo can be seen in today's Tokyo. So, Taiman, thank you so much for joining me today. Perhaps it's it's perhaps it's best to start with the book's title, um, you know, Tokyo Before Tokyo. What does your book mean by that? And how does the city of Edo differ? How is the city of Edo different from how most people think of Tokyo today? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having, having me on your program. Um, it's a great pleasure to talk about um, the book. The title, of course, titles go through all kinds of committees and publishers have a stake in what's, what you come up with as well as the author themselves. But, of course, the word Edo doesn't have huge name recognition um, outside people who know already about Japan. And where I teach in London, um, we have also a very large Africa department and there's an Edo period in Nigerian history too. So um, just in order that the book is kind of immediately placed in the mind of a potential reader or, or even purchaser, we thought we should have the word Tokyo in there. And uh, the book appeared last summer, so there was some hope on the publisher's side that it would kind of cash in on the fact that there was the Tokyo Olympics. It obviously didn't happen, but we all thought that Tokyo would be um, in the air, and people who want to know the city that they were going to or that they were watching on television. And um, the history of Tokyo as Tokyo is rather short, because that name was given only in 1868. Of course, the city is older than that. So my idea was to set the Tokyo that people might or might not have watched in the Olympics, the people might or might not have lived in, visited, hoped to go to one day, or just know of, uh, and give it a bit of historical depth. So maybe to kind of set out the history, what, what role does Edo play in, in the history of Japan? Um, well, Japan 
was quite highly urbanized from very early on. So there are Japanese cities that go back to the beginning of literacy in Japan, although we might say literacy in Japan came very late compared with Europe or the Arab world or China. But still, uh, Japanese metropolis of a fairly large size go back at least to the 6th century. And because Japan has relatively little flat land, so much is mountainous, almost always where there's a bit of flat land, you get some kind of human habitation going back um, a long way. Maybe not a city, but even prehistoric um, villages and things can be discovered going back 10, 15,000 years, wherever there is flat land. But almost the only exception to that rule is the area that became Tokyo, which was not developed. And there's a pretty good reason for that, which anyone who visited here will know, which is they have earthquakes all the time. Um, the older areas of Japanese um, kind of cultural centrality around what's today Kyoto and Osaka and Nara rarely have earthquakes and therefore um, people could build successfully there. Tokyo area has earthquakes so often that things built would simply fall down and earthquakes lead to tsunamis. Tokyo's deep in the bay, so the tsunamis couldn't get in, but any cargo ships coming back and forth, any sorts of deliveries would be at the mercy of the seas. And when earthquakes come, they don't only cause tsunamis and make buildings fall down, they also create fires, and that's the real danger that braziers and cooking stoves turn over. So this area that became Tokyo, today one of the world's greatest cities, was just a kind of wilderness for a very long time. And it happened that a, um, well, Japan had a long civil war throughout the 16th century and castles were built up all over the place. And about 1500 or so, a castle was built on a rocky outcrop, fairly safe uh, above the water level in what became Tokyo. And that's the start of it. So 1500 or so, something began here. But it wasn't until the Tokugawa family, who in the 17th century would become the famous shoguns, they arrived here when they were not yet shoguns, took over that castle, built it, and raised the city that became Edo. And the date of that is given as 1590. So Japan, uh, uh, Edo is not an old city. Um, really, it begins in 1590. Uh, the Tokugawa family ruled from here. They became shoguns in 1603. From, so from that year, we can really say Edo became a significant place. And it grew so big um, that despite all the fires and the earthquakes, uh, it stayed as Japan's principal cultural and commercial center. Could say in passing that the fires might have helped uh, because Edo never had plague compared with London, Paris, all the European cities uh, um, where the danger of big metropolis, of course, very relevant for the modern world, is disease. And Edo was mercifully spared from that, uh, probably because of its fires. So good and bad came out of uh, the same cause. It, it's interesting you note the, the earthquakes point, because that's actually not something I had, I had realized before um, reading your book and this conversation. Um, you know, I think a lot of what we think of is, you know, quote-unquote traditional Japan, Especially things like, you know, let, let's say somewhat, let's say semi-informed comments that, oh, they build out of paper because of the earthquakes and the fires. It sounds like that's, that's very much an, an, an Edo 
uh, phenomenon. And as you know, it is not necessarily replicated elsewhere in, in Japan. But so much of our understanding of Japanese culture, especially quote-unquote traditional Japanese culture, seems to be based off of, as you note in your book, the culture of Edo. That's probably true. And as Edo sort of morphed into Tokyo, the people that lived here were the ones who wrote about what Japanese history was. And foreign visitors came and said, what's your history? And it was all based around Edo. Of course, people always want to go to Kyoto too, and it's an amazing city to see. Um, but that's deep history. You know, The things that people go to look at in Kyoto, often they were built in you know, 13th, 14th centuries. So it, maybe there's overtures of, you know, do you learn about Italy by seeing Rome, or are you better off going to see Milan? Many countries, of course, have more than one cultural center. But Edo, growing into Tokyo, became so enormous that what Edo did became thought of as today as what Tokyo does. And even Japanese people have absorbed that. So Mount Fuji, eating raw fish, um, the love of little minute, clever little knick-knack kind of things um, are all related to um, Edo, not to Tokyo. And in the Edo period itself, that means to say between um, about 1600 and Edo becoming Tokyo in 1868, in those 250 years, when Edo people went to Kyoto, the thing that they always said was there's so much stone. Um, things are really built to last. It doesn't feel like our light and flimsy um, buildings um, in, the, in the Shogun Zone city. Um, so, your, so Tokyo Before Tokyo is, is, a, is a lovely illustrated book. Lots of you know, paintings and images of, from the period. Um, if someone, I guess if someone were to, were to time travel and um, were able to visit the, um, the city of Edo in the period you write about, what are the kinds of things they would see? What are the, what's the city like? It's, it's visuals, it's culture, um, it's atmosphere. Uh, Edo people wrote a lot about their own city, and many people arrived there from the countryside looking for fame and fortune and pulled by the lure of the big city. So we have a lot of people's own expressions about what they thought that their city was. And I just mentioned Edo travels to Kyoto, but there was a lot of coming and going. That highway was densely traveled. It's almost exactly 500 kilometers, but quite easy to manage. And so people would go to Kyoto and, and, and go to Edo and compare them. And it's often said that we understand ourselves by the encounter with another that makes us define ourselves. So we get that very much between the two cities. And there's even a whole literary genre of comparisons of the cities. Uh, and usually they say things like um, the old capital Kyoto has, is made of stone, it has wonderful old buildings, it has beautiful um, temples, the, the, the ladies speak in wonderful language, and Edo's a bit rough and ready, it's rather military, it's um, people swear and spit in the streets, and in fact there was a kind of um, uh, expression they said for Edo, the three things you find in Edo are um, shops called, uh, um, hang on, so the three things you find in, uh, in, 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 in Edo are sh shrines to the fox god. He's a very popular um, common or garden kind of deity, um, fights, and dog mess. So they said, inari, kenka to inu no fun. Shrines to the fox god, um, fights, and dog mess. And you didn't find any of those things in Kyoto because Kyoto is more refined. But dominating, dominating Edo would have been, of course, the shogun's castle, which was one of the biggest castles ever built on earth. It was 16 kilometers in circumference. That meant 
that means it would take an entire day just to walk around the outside walls. And it had a huge six-story keep, which was uh, lost. It burnt down at one point. But it was, when Edo was created, uh, everyone has the feeling of being, as they said, um, in the lap of the shogun. Let's let's segue to talk about the the shogun's castle, um, which is which is the subject of, of one of the vignettes in your book. Um, you know, the the this chapter talks about the castles of, of Edo, what they represent the people of Edo over time. But as you also noted, um, the castles burned down and they were never rebuilt. And you have a theory as to why that might have been the case. I wonder if you might kind of get into your your discussion of the castles and 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 how maybe they represent the shogun's view of itself as an entity with, with, with power. Yes, so the, a shogunate is a military regime, right? And, and in, in East Asian thought, I mean, things really go back to Chinese statescraft, is that, of course, every state has an army, but states should be civil, civilian ruled. And the idea that a state was ruled by a military caste uh, was anomalous within East Asian thought. And the Japanese were always having to somehow rather justify that to themselves. And shogunates were also having to not debate their legitimacy because they were entirely legitimate, but that their justification for their existence, what exactly they were. And in the, eight, in the 16th century civil wars, and one has to imagine that the Edo period comes out of a hundred year civil war, people had got used to armaments on the streets, um, soldiers wandering around, generals uh, um, demanding things. And the shogunate emerges as the most powerful military grouping. Um, But they then bring peace. And having brought peace, it seems very strange to have castles and military hardware all over the place. But if they say we've brought peace, we don't need a shogunate anymore because we'll return power to the civil authorities, then the shogunate has no justification. So obviously they can't say that. So they try to turn themselves into something a bit different. Always there remain samurai. That means to say that they had swords, they used military offices, uh, they um, um, ranks and things were all from the military. But they tried to turn themselves into a government that projected itself as not having fought its way to power and killed the others, but as having been accepted because of their moral force. And this is a, a very Chinese way of thinking about statescraft, that, that a good person is accepted as such by people who then follow that person. Up to the highest level, you get governments formed that way. And if a family over time becomes corrupt and wicked, then heaven will take away their right to rule, there will be a revolution, another good person will come and establish power again. So the shogunate tries to make themselves into demonstrably good people. And good people don't need to protect themselves from angry peasants. So you shouldn't need castles, you shouldn't need one. So they don't actually ever dismantle their castle. But if an earthquake comes, if a fire comes, if things fall down, if trees grow up, uh, the moat gets clogged with with, with lotuses, they let that happen. And the shogunate turns itself into, um, into a, a self-proposed moral force rather than a military one. Um, I'd like to kind of cycle back to one of the, the earlier chapters in your book. Um, and that's the one that talks about the, I, I guess we can call it the, the way the city of Edo is laid out, how it's kind of oriented around certain landmarks, specifically yes. um, the 
I should have asked how to pronounce this at the beginning of the before we started the uh, the uh, Nihonbashi. That's right. The, Pronunciation the correct. Yes. Um, I guess could could talk a bit more about 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 how that or, or how you tried to approach that subject. Yes. So when during the Civil War period, of course, there were castles all over the place, and where you get castles, you need a service town. So you get these castle towns dotted around the Japanese landscape. And initially, Edo was simply that. But from 1603, the uh, warlord that operates from there is made shogun. I should have said that shogun is um, a title that is endorsed by the emperor. So the emperor has no power. But if he says, um, if he he commands someone to be shogun, of course, he has to do it because they've asked him to command them to be shogun, then the it's suddenly a, a, a status changes from warlords to being part of a, a, a proper administration. So the shogunate wished to turn their city from a castle town into something grander. And normally in East Asian thought, a grand city should be a grid. And it would be expected that Edo would turn from a castle town into a grid city. But we know in retrospect that the shogunate lasted for 250 years more or less of peace, but they didn't know that at the time. And for them to create a grid city was simply too risky. Right? Grids allow any incoming army to get around very easily. You know where everything's located. So they kept their city as a castle town, but they wanted to do something to demarcate its difference. And the proposal of my book, and I should say this is my theory, I'm not sure um, whether it's widely agreed, although I hope people will accept it is that they created for the first time ever in Japanese history an iconic center to their city. And you have to think, this is happening about 1600, 1603, 1610, when Japan is very open to Western shipping. There are Italians, Portuguese, Spanish, English, Dutch, uh, wandering around Japan. And when you travel, you tell people about your home. Um, Japan would have been informed about European cities, especially Rome, Lisbon, um, they're built around an iconic core. In fact, it's the kind of fundamental feature of an important Western city that it has a center. Think of Trafalgar Square in London. Obviously, that came later. But you have a core, a point zero, around which you gather things to display what the government is. You know, Trafalgar Square happens to be where I come from. There's the National Gallery. There's a great church. There is uh, colon- embassies of the colonies. There's one street leading you to Parliament one street leading you to the palace, one street leading you to the river. Right? It, it, it says what the state is. and I'm, I'm thinking of the National Mall in D.C., even of, though that's also a great city. Well, uh, of course, the, the, mall, the mall in D.C. is another very good example, Place de la Concorde uh, in, in Paris. These, they, they, so there's no document surviving saying, I told the Shogun about this. But we do know that a very gorgeous and a famous picture, pictorial anthology of European cities was brought to Japan about the year 15. 90 and um, would have been seen by people in authority and somehow our idea the idea came up we can't make a grid city because it's too uh, it can't be protected we don't want to be a castle town because we've gone beyond that now and so they build a focal center and they decide the focal center will not be a square as you find in european cities but a bridge and again we can only hypothesize because nobody said why they did it but when war comes, you destroy bridges. Um, again, sorry, excuse me for talking about London again, but everyone knows the song, London Bridge is Falling Down. But London Bridge didn't fall down. The citizens of London destroyed their own bridge 
for fear of an invasion. Uh, and it was so traumatic to destroy a bridge because they're so hard and expensive to build. But here it is a thousand years later, people are still singing a song about having destroyed the bridge in London. And in Japan's civil war, all the bridges were gone. There was famous bridges in Kyoto, all totally gone. So for the shogunate to build a bridge, not rebuild it in Kyoto, but to build it in their own city, was to say peace has come. And bridges have deep symbolic meaning in many cultures. The um, Westerners who were wandering around Japan at this point, I just said, a large number of them were Roman Catholic priests. And don't forget that the Pope called himself Pontifex Maximus, right? The great builder of bridges. So in Christian thought, a bridge is a leading from uh, this world to the next world. And you get a very similar thinking in Buddhism as well, that a bridge is from this world of vanity and error to a world of deeper thought and meaning somewhere different. And the bridges which do exist in, in Japanese history, there are famous bridges, of course, that were there. Um, almost every bridge is said to have been built by a holy person as an act of devotion. So for the shogunate to build a bridge and say, this is the center of our city now, is highly meaningful. And they gathered around that bridge institutions of significance for where they were going. And uh, the three institutions which were there in London, it's got the um, National Gallery, the church and the, and the embassies. But in Edo, what you had is point one was a time bell. And think about the Civil War that you just did things when your commander told you to. But when peace comes and there is, you go to work and you come home and you have obligations, you need time. And the shogun donated a bell. And every time it was lost through fire, he donated another one. And the last donation of the early 18th century is still hanging there in central Tokyo. A time is established. And the second thing the shogun brought to Nihonbashi was a mint. Throughout almost all Japanese history, the government has not issued coin. It sounds funny from a Western perspective, because in the Arab world and in the Christian world, it's always the case that governments issue coin. It's one of the, it's one of the definitions of statehood. And this is, uh, of course, with the euro, going to an international currency was a very remarkable thing for that reason. But the Japanese government virtually never issued coinage. They just used Chinese money. But now suddenly they did. The shogunate issued its own coin, and the mint was there at Nihonbashi. And the third thing that they put uh, on the site was, well, in London there are embassies. Japan didn't have fixed international relations except with one country, and perhaps a little surprisingly, that was what was in those days called the United Provinces, the country that today we call the Netherlands or Holland. And in the early 17th century, when this whole city was set up, the Dutch East India Company was one of the world's great trading organizations, and they brought to Japan things not just from Holland, or not just from Europe, but from all over the world. And once every year, they came from their distant port, which was Nagasaki, way the other end of the country. Every year, they came to Edo to give the shogun gifts and to thank him for their monopolistic privileges on trading. And so their um, residence in Edo was at Nihonbashi too. So you had those three fundamental 
foci of power, right? The control of time, the control of value, and the control of space focused at Nihonbashi. A bridge is always going to be a bottleneck, and Edo had many moats and um, and, and rivers through it. So getting around the city, you would cross Nihonbashi, thunderous number of people crossing it all the time. And as you stood on the apex of the bridge, naturally, you'd look towards um, the castle, and you'd see this magnificent, um, gilded, radiant presence of the shogunate. And to the left of the castle, kind of an equipoise to it, you'd have seen Mount Fuji. So Nihonbashi was also set up to be a vista onto the castle and then onto um, the glorious form of Mount Fuji. So I want to bring up one more, let's say, topic that that Tokyo for Tokyo brings up, and that is the that is the Yoshiwara district, the red light district. Um, I guess for someone who 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 doesn't know what this is, um, what was the Yoshiwara district? Um, what does it signify in Edo's history and culture? And your book also talks about some relationship between you know Buddhism and spirituality with I guess you can call it materialism as reflected in the Yoshiwara district. Yeah. There's there's a lot there. But I guess I'm giving you the space to talk about whatever you want involving the involving this part of Edo. Okay. Well, I mean it's a great. It's a very interesting topic, and I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of the floating world, which is the name they gave to the world of pleasure, uh, irresponsible distraction. Um, you, you see it to some extent still in Tokyo when, well, not right now because everything's locked down, but people work extremely hard and assiduously during the day. And then in the evenings, it's thoroughly expected and perfectly um, socially condoned that you, you go out and get drunk and the boss that you've been um, following orders from all day in the evening, you can tell him what you really think of him, and it's all fine. And the next morning, you go in and say, uh, "I'm sorry, I was a bit drunk last night." And the boss says, "Oh, I completely forgot everything you said." So it's always been a sort of release mechanism from the very strong social pressures which exist today, but which also exist in the past. Thinking of uh, a kind of samurai city. Now, so that that's about drinking. There was also theatres uh, and social mixing was took place in the Yoshiwara. Originally, actually, it had also been at Nihonbashi. Uh, and that area is a bit marshy. So Yoshiwara means the reed field, just the place name. But it was moved out as Edo grew. They didn't want the red light district right in the center of town, partly because it was too tempting, also because it operated at night and people got drunk and kicked over um, lanterns and things, so they were very worried about fires. And the Oshiwada was relocated to a certain distance outside the city, so going there would have been quite a trek, and probably not that many people went that often. It was also very expensive. But the Oshiwada provi- provided a kind of um, mental zone for the imagination of just having fun. Uh, so it has a vast presence in popular literature, and also in prints, because Japanese woodblock prints today are very justly famous, and a large number of them depict the institutions of the pleasure district. Now, it's also important to say that our notion of pleasure and of exploitation and of moral behavior is very different from theirs. The pleasure district was fundamentally built on female prostitution, and um, we probably have views about that. In fact, 
I don't doubt we all have views about that. The views that they had about prostitution were different. Uh, people would have thought at the time, um, it's no worse being a sex worker than it is slaving in the fields. Um, you Chances are you have better food, you uh, meet nicer people, you wear better clothes, you probably won't get uh, whipped and beaten as you might on the farm. So that going into sex work was hardly an ideal career path, but given the options that many young women had, it was okay. And there was always a fantasy, and it often was no more than a fancy a fantasy, that you'll meet some wonderful young man who will actually fall in love with you and buy out your contract. Because these, of course, they're not slaves. They were um, contracted in and they were paid for that. Uh, but the, the man could buy out your contract and take, him, take you home as his wife and, and, and several people had more than one wife. So, so it did occasionally happen. Sorry, but sorry, to give you a long answer. But the, the final thing is that the lot of the sex worker was regarded as hard because they have to lie. And in all East Asian countries, the fundamental root of morality is sincerity and that you should not say things which are untrue. The courtesan, the sex worker, the prostitute, whatever you want to call her, or sometimes in other areas, him had to lie, right? They spend all evenings telling a man that they love him when they don't. Uh, it's the same reason why actors were regarded, in, in many cultures, actors are regarded as suspicious because mm. they can um, tell a lie and the audience believes it. They can make you cry with something that isn't even true. Uh, so that was why the red light district, while being entirely accepted and condoned by the shogunate, also had its worrying dimension and it's one reason why it was put outside the city partly purely for practical reasons for fires but also there was something improper about it not because people sold their bodies that happens all over the place but because it was where fun was based on on lies now you asked me a question also how this fits with buddhist thought and buddhism of course is about um stilling your karma about eventually getting into this place we usually say in English as nirvana, uh, a kind of um, uh, emptiness which comes about through the stilling of desire because desire brings pain. And in order to still desire, they say, well, a monk, right? A monk or a nun, they leave their home. They never marry. They never have children. They even leave their parents. They have no home. They have no clothing. They just wear a monastic robe. All these things they have got rid of as a way to find something higher. Well, not having a home, not having any money, not having any clothes, actually this describes the courtesan, right? As she works in the pleasure district, she has no family, she has no, she has a roof over her head, it's not hers, she's given clothes to wear as long as she's doing the job. Actually, strangely enough, if you think of the nearest person to having no karmic links, it's the sex worker. And although partly that was said as a joke or as a self-justification for men that liked spending time there, actually it was quite seriously taken. And no less a person than one of the shogun's own um, kind of confessors uh, uh, wrote a, a poem precisely meditating on this. is the rather famous verse in which he thinks to himself, what is the difference between what we call irresponsibility and improper lifestyles and the nothingness of a Buddhist truth. So I'd like to take a step back from 
from from these different historical subjects. And maybe talk about the book in general and your choice in structuring the book in the way you did. Um, rather than being, you know, your your standard history where you start from date A and go to date B and then you just run through what happened. Um, the book is framed around a series I think the review of the Asian books called it a series of vignettes almost, centered on different buildings, different districts, different landmarks. Um, do you get a different perspective on Edo's history from making that like a structural decision around the book? I, ha- I had a lot of debates about how I should do it. Um, the book partly came out of having taught this in university classrooms for a couple of decades now. And I found that students respond very well, whether they've ever been to the place or not, but a kind of a node. And then you can often think whatever city you might live in or or are familiar with to make comparisons. Many of us know what it means to be a city but a city centre, as I said, Nihonbashi, or a city that has a castle, or if not a castle, maybe some big centre of authority. How does it match? So um, I felt that by selecting, of course not randomly, but by selecting, selecting some mutually complementary spots, I could say something about Edo more deeply than I could have done in the same number of words, trying to give a kind of standard chronological history of a 250-year period, which would have ended up being very very um, superficial uh, and brief. I also hope that the points I selected make comparisons with what a Western audience might expect. After all, the book's written in English. I'm happy to say it's actually being translated into Japanese, so it'd be interesting to know what Japanese readers think about it, but and it's also being translated to Chinese, actually. But um, um, you haven't had time to talk about it today. But I talk about, for example, the city's poetic presence. Mm. That, that that Kyoto, uh, being the centre of culture for so long, has a vast amount of poetry written about it. This doesn't happen so much in Western poetry, as far as I understand it, but in Japanese poetry, vast amount of it is topographical. So. Edo had no poetry because the city was brand new. How do you deal with that? Uh, anyway, so so that's not quite a node of a location like the castle or the bridge, but it's a node of thought, which I hope will interest readers in its own right, but also might be unexpected and might then make them think a little bit more broadly about other cities. In other words, I hope the book has interest of people who want to know more about Japan or maybe have been to Japan, but also people in a comparative perspective might be wanting to think about cities of the Mayan Empire or, or Baghdad or, 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 or Washington, D.C. Or, or anything else, too. Um, one, one final question, I think, before we wrap. And, you know, it's a bit of a it's it's probably a bit of a downer to end at the end. Um, but what happens as Edo becomes Tokyo? Um, I think, as you note, much of the old Edo is lost as the city transforms to Tokyo. But even with that, is there any part of old Edo that you can see in Tokyo today? There are a couple of buildings. Um, there was, of course, there was the regular attrition of fires and earthquakes that happened throughout the Edo period. So even if you've been living in the mid-Edo period, there would have been few early 70th century buildings. And if you lived at the close of the Edo period, 1850, there'd be very few mid-18th century buildings. You know, cultures of stone expect old buildings to be around, and it just doesn't happen here. It can't happen here. Um, so there's a kind of um, grandfather's axe, you know, the expression where 
uh, you say this is my grandfather's axe my 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 father replaced the shaft and I've replaced the head in other words it's all new but somehow or other I still consider it to be my grandfather's axe so a lot of Japanese buildings were going through perpetual rebuildings you have to replace the wooden elements uh, you have to replace the paper screens and yet people thought of it as a kind of proper legitimate continuity of the built-in environment. Um, Having said that, in Tokyo today, there are uh, at least two or three pretty prominent um, early 17th century buildings. Uh, They survived not only the periodical Edo rebuildings, but also the Second World War. And before the Second World War, there was a terrible great earthquake of the 1920s here. So they are there to be seen. Um, but when Edo disappeared, it wasn't just a change of regime. It was a complete change of lifestyle that people changed their haircuts. They changed the way they bathed. They changed the way they went to work. And so the old buildings were difficult to live in and difficult to use for a new regime. If you happen to live in, um, you know, you can live in Rome and you can live perfectly easily in a building from the 15th century, if you could find one. Our lives have not changed so much. You've got to put new plumbing in the toilet and you're fine. But that just didn't work with Japanese buildings. So the new regime, the new lifestyle required different things. So up went post offices and, and railway stations and, and, and consulates and things. And some of those early um, modernization buildings are also there to be seen. So it's not like Tokyo is all post-war. There are um, buildings from the 19th century to be seen. But so often they've had to be repurposed because we don't live that way anymore, not to mention the fact that everyone is um, six inches taller than they were at that time. So windows are too low, doors are too low, etc. So it's often said today that Edo survives in stories and in memories and in place names. Uh, If I can do a plug for a book written by a friend of mine, there's a book called Tokyo City of Stories. And in that book, the author concedes that there's very little left to find on the ground, but you can hear in the memory uh, places of, of the past. And perversely, well, maybe not perversely, but anyway, the, the more you go away from power, the more you go to the little neighborhood areas, the more you find old ways of thinking in place, right? because the central government removed all that. But if you are lucky enough to live you know, you have a, um, uh, an old lady around the corner, an old man selling things as he's always been doing, talk to such people, then you do find um, history quite alive and well, uh, even though, of course, the Edo period ended in 1868. It's, it's, it's a long time ago. So thank you for listening to our interview with Professor Timon Screech, author of Tokyo Before Tokyo, Power and Magic in the Shogun City of Edo. One actual last question. Uh, Timon, what's next for you, and where can people find your work? Uh, well, um, by all means, Google my name or use whatever online book purchasing um, uh, 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 location you, you like to. I'd be delighted to sell a few copies. Uh, I wrote a fairly substantial overview of the arts of the whole Edo period. So if any of your listeners would like to know not just about the city of Edo, but about what the art and culture was like, that book is called Obtaining Images. You can get it in paperback. Uh, but now I'm working on the deification of the first shogun. He built Edo from 1590. He became shogun in 16. 
1603. He died in 1616, and he was deified. And it's quite unusual. Japan is not monotheistic, and there are other human beings that have become gods. But the method of his defecation and the appearance of the shrines built to him is rather special. And um, if anyone has a chance to come to Tokyo, then you'll want to make a day trip to a town to the north called Nikko, N-I-K-K-O, and that is where the first shogun's mausoleum is, a very magnificent thing to see, and so I'm, I'm working on, on that. I don't yet have a title for the book, but hopefully in two or three years' time, if all goes well, there'll be something else that your listeners might like to get their hands on. Well, I, I, I look forward to hearing more about it. Um, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We hope you subscribe and continue listening to the Asian Review of Books podcast, um, now found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends if you want to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more information soon on who is coming up next on the podcast. But before that, uh, Tymon, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure.